0: All right, our our, uh, scripture for this uh, day, for this Sunday, is uh, Matthew 3, 1 to 17. It says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw that many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, "'You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance?' And do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and you saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. All right, everyone. It's, I've been away for two out of the last three weeks from church, so we've lost a little bit of our momentum on this series. Um, thanks to Kathy and John for, for filling in for me. Um, but don't worry. As, just John. Okay, sorry, my bad. <laughs> um, as far as I know, you'll be stuck with me every week uh, until at least November. So, <laughs> Anyway, our sermon series is going over the story of the Bible, taking one important chapter at a time. Let's recap since it's been a while. In the beginning, God made a good world by abolishing the chaos of non-existence and brought the world into a working order. The good world was vandalized when humans sinned in the Garden of Eden and that led them to be exiled from God's presence there. But since God wasn't present, that chaos and non-existence and death that God abolished by creating began to seep back into the world. God has to be with us or the world will be unmade. But God God began to restore his presence to the world by making a deal with Abraham that his whole family would be the ones to return the presence of God to the world and that God would bless them. Very quickly, it became obvious to everyone that Abraham's family really was blessed and that God was really with them. He lived among them in a tent, moving around wherever they went, and eventually they built him a temple with foundations. God gave them a king, and he made an unbreakable covenant that a king from David's line would sit on the throne of Israel forever, and that through that king, God would abolish chaos and evil, just like he did in creation. Cain was the representative of, God, of Israel to God, just like Israel was supposed to be the representative of the world. There were only a few really big rules that they had to follow so that God could live among them and save the world, and could be summarized as, love God and love other people like yourself. The Israelites were absolutely terrible at following those rules, and the natural punishment for their sins, just like in the Garden of Eden, was exile away from God and away from the land that God had given them. This exile happened to them, but there were hints that the exile wasn't just going to to pay for Israel's sins, but instead Israel would be suffering for the sake of the whole world. And when all that happened, all sins would be forgiven, and the whole world would be united to God once again. The world would go full circle and be returned back to the way that it was always supposed to be. Two weeks ago, we saw that God finally decided to end the exile by sending his son Jesus as the rightful king of Israel. Things were complicated, though, because Rome was a really powerful foe, and if anyone really recognizes Jesus as the true King of Israel, that means defying Rome. The Jewish leaders, who were supposed to be excited that God was making the world right again, were all too aware that Rome was looking over their shoulders. And so from the very beginning of the life of the Messiah, the Jewish leaders were out to kill Jesus. And that brings us to this story. Now, One of the coolest things I've seen biblical authors do is stream multiple individual stories together to make a point. Like in the case of Matthew, there's a story of the wise men, followed by the story of Herod killing all the 4 born children, followed by Jesus' baptism, then Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, and so on. Sometimes those stories are simply put in chronological order. But sometimes authors deliberately put their historical stories in a specific order so that some common theme comes across from all of them. The order authors put their stories in can actually make an important point. There's an example in the book of Judges where the author actually has Joshua's death happen twice. So you know it's not in chronological order. So you have to think, huh, why did the author put these stories in this order? A lot of times, we read Bible stories like they're complete by themselves, And that can make us miss ways that the authors are actually stringing together a whole bunch of stories in a special order so they can make a point. The way Matthew does that here is I think one of the coolest ways that an author strings together stories in the whole Bible. And I'll show you what that looks like here. Once I take a drink. (laughs) Two weeks ago, we saw that all the Jewish leaders together and especially their king, Herod, decided they wanted to kill the Messiah in order to make peace with Rome. Obviously, that meant that Jesus was in danger, so an angel came to Joseph in a dream and told him that he needed to flee to Egypt until Herod dies so that Jesus can be saved. So then Herod dies and Jesus comes back. In Matthew 2.15, Matthew says, This took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Which is a quote from Hosea 12.1. At which point you say, okay, fair enough, Matthew. So let's look at that passage and see how this stuff about Egypt fulfills that prophecy. So you go to Hosea 12.1, or 11.1, my bad. (laughs) And it says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So then you say, hold up, Matthew. This is very clearly not a prophecy about Jesus. In fact, it's not a prophecy at all. All it says is that God loved Israel and brought them out of Egypt which he already did in the Exodus. And that happened like 700 years before Hosea was written. That that was talking about history, not prophecy. So what's going on here? Well, it makes more sense, if you remember what we talked about earlier, that when God gave Israel kings, the kings were basically representatives of Israel to God, just like Israel represented the whole world to God. In other words, when the kings of Israel did a bunch of bad stuff, Israel did a bunch of bad stuff, and God punished them all. And when the king did really good stuff, which was rarely, then Israel did a bunch of good stuff, and God rewarded them all. At some points, it wasn't always clear where the biblical authors stopped talking about the king and started talking about all of Israel, because where one goes, the other goes. Matthew established last week that Jesus, as a newborn, was the new king of Israel, and so it makes sense that Jesus would be identified with Israel as a whole, and that's where the cool part starts. Matthew gave us this weird, seemingly out-of-context prophecy as a signal. He's basically saying, when you see Jesus over the next couple of chapters, you should see Israel as a whole. And if you read between here and chapter 7, you'll see that Matthew is retelling the whole story of Israel through Jesus. It's pretty cool. The very next story is about how Herod kills all the firstborn of Bethlehem. Huh, that sounds a lot like Passover, when the angel of death killed all the firstborn of Egypt. Then he came out of Egypt, and just like Israel came out of Egypt. And in our chapter, a miracle happens as God splits open the sky while Jesus passes through the waters. Huh, that's a lot like in Exodus, when a miracle happens and Moses splits the waters of the Dead Sea so that Israel can pass through. Then in, Ma- then in Matthew 4, uh, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Huh. That sounds a lot like when Israel was wandering in the desert for 40 years after the Exodus. Then we get to chapters 5 to 7, and Jesus gets up on a mountain and gives a sermon where he basically lays out the law for his new kingdom. Huh, that sounds a lot like when Moses went up on a mountain at Sinai and announced God's law to Israel. The point that Matthew is basically making is that Jesus is the true Israel, the one that, that was meant to be all along. When God made a promise to Abraham that his descendants and his people would be blessed through him, and they, through them they would bless the world, that was actually being accomplished in Jesus. Through Jesus, God was retelling the story of Israel, but where Israel was disobedient and vandalized the world, Jesus was obedient and saved the world. Everything that Israel was ever supposed to do, Jesus did. But why would this have been an important message to, for Matthew to give? And what does it tell us about God? After the exile, the Jews had questions about whether their covenant with God was still on. Many of them weren't in the Promised Land anymore, it didn't seem like God was in their temple, and there wasn't a king from the line of David anymore. But here, Matthew comes along and says that the, actually the covenant is still on. God was returning to his people. But not just by coming back to his temple after the exile, but he was coming back in human form. And since the exile was over, a king from David's line was finally here. But this king was God himself, guaranteeing that God would be well pleased with him. There's no humans messing this one up. Israel was being reformed back to its original intention. But God was accomplishing everything that Israel was supposed to accomplish in spite of Israel's best efforts to thwart him. They were trying to kill him. That's how faithful God is to his promises. When his people weren't obedient enough for God to accomplish what he promised, God came down and was obedient on their behalf. Jesus was the only faithful Israelite, but since he was the king, he was the representative of the whole people, which means that Israel as a whole succeeded in the end. When Israel was tempted in the wilderness, they they failed constantly. Israel made other gods. But Jesus, the true Israel, said, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. The Israelites in the desert grumbled about the manna that they were given. But but a starving Jesus, the true Israel, said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Israelites in the desert put God to the test by quarreling with Moses about whether God was with them. But Jesus, the true Israel, said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When Israel failed to do what it was meant to do to save the world, God came as a human Israelite, as Jesus, and did it for them. And that meant that God's promise to undo the effects of sin through Abraham's family from the very beginning was fulfilled. And we all have the blessings of God's presence on earth. All the, presence that God, all the promises that God gave... That a coming king would save Israel from their enemies and set the whole world right. Israel's hope for the end of exile for 500 years was finally being fulfilled, and the world was meant to benefit from it. This group of passages really shows that God not only kept up his end of the deal, but he kept up Israel's end of the deal too. He made an obedient Israel when Israel wasn't obedient, so that he could bless the world. And that really shows that you can trust God will keep his promises even when you sin too. I mean, you've certainly not screwed up as bad as Israel did for literally millennia. And the blessings that come from God's promises is that he would rule over the world justly, unlike all these really bad human rulers that they saw all at that time and we often see now. But at the beginning of that exile, a confused Israel cried out to God, in hopes that he would save them from their invaders, that God would be with them once again, and that God would bring vengeance to their oppressors. They said, Oh God, didn't you say that you rule over the whole world? Didn't you make it? Don't you control it? Didn't you promise that you would reign over the earth as its king? Why have you let these men of violence come and oppress us and take us from the land you gave us? How long, O Lord, will your anger burn against us? And you have to sympathize with them. They had to wait a long time. We have the same thoughts too, don't we? Sometimes. Oh God, why could you let the evil that we constantly see on the news happen? Why did you let my friend get sick or make me lose my job? Why did? Why will you just let the world fall apart? One solution our culture has adopted is just to say that God is distant. He lives up there in heaven and nothing that he really does affects us. Hey, you know, maybe he's watching us some, and someday the, the people who believe with him will go and see him. But that's the best we can really ask for. As N.T. Wright says, we kind of banished God upstairs and said, rule the earth, we can, we can rule earth, you can rule heaven. But when we find that we really can't rule over the earth, which I think the past few years have shown us, is that the God that we want? Do we want a God that leaves us alone and watches over us from above, but keeps his polite distance, while every one of us can't help but destroy the world? Things like being exiled from your homeland and brutalized by foreigners like Israel, or global pandemics like we see, really make you question whether you want a distant God. My God, why do you stay upstairs? At the beginning of the exile, when they faced these same questions, Israel cried out in Isaiah sixty-four one. Oh, that you would open the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood, and when as and the fire it causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence when you did awesome things we did not look for. You came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. Israel yearns for God to come down from heaven, and come down from heaven upstairs, and invade the earth, to make his reign over the world finally apparent, and to set things right. Israel never wanted a God who stays silent, and lets us do what we want, and waits for us to be good. When Israel was at their best, they knew that they needed God to be with them, or they would be unmade. Then in this passage, when Jesus is baptized, it says, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God coming down like a dove and coming to rest with him. It fulfills the prophecy that, oh, that you would open the heavens and come down. Matthew very clearly is echoing that passage from Isaiah 64 here. In Christ, the hope hope of Israel, that God would finally open the heavens and come down and rule over the earth justly, is fulfilled. Praise the Lord, God has not stayed distant, but has invaded our corrupted world. He hasn't left us alone, because leaving us alone is literally hell. And I think we can start to agree on this after the last few years. If God isn't with us, then we will destroy the world in more ways than one. But God didn't leave us alone, but he opened the heavens and came down. Israel's hope that the Messiah would return to God's presence to the world and bring order and meaning to life is here, and all flesh has seen it together. But the way that God does it, is totally unexpected. The mountains quaking and nations trembling and fire kindling sounds like God is going to have to do some violence to invade the earth. And fair enough, you have to crack a few eggs to make an omelet. Even look at the way that John the Baptist is talking in our passage. He gets angry with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and he says the Messiah is coming to baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty threatening. Baptism, baptism by f- uh, fire doesn't sound pleasant. John the Baptist is pretty much saying, the Messiah is coming and you're on his hit list. Later on, John has to send his messengers to Jesus about whether he really is the Messiah, because John w- wasn't seeing the wrath and violence and judgment he was expecting. John, along with pretty much every Jew, was really expecting a baptism by fire. They expected the Messiah to come and burn down the corrupt Jewish leaders Along with the Romans that were oppressing them, in a totally un- understandable way, they were longing for God to come and baptize ba- baptize the world with fire. John might have even been thinking it on passage from Malachi. It says, "The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver." And he shall purify the sons of Levi and re- refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Part and parcel of the Jewish expectations of God's coming was that he would sweep away all the wicked in terrifying wrath. But the question is, who can stand when he appears? Is anyone righteous enough to survive God's baptism by fire? Does Israel really want that? But God's power was different. God doesn't come into the world with an army ready to take names. He comes as a sufferer who's quietly fulfilled all that Israel is meant to do, with hardly any people really knowing it about at, about it at the time. But then he defeated death in the resurrection. He tore down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, and people are left thinking, "Huh, God really did it, didn't he?" And he go back to his preaching, where he talks about how his kingdom wasn't meant for the powerful, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but for the Gentiles and the poor and the weak. How he said, blessed are the peacemakers, and turn the other cheek. And he realized that God's power really was different from the beginning. It wasn't based on the threat of coercion, because the best that threats can do is produce cowed and passive obedience. God's power from the beginning to the end was based on self-sacrificing love, which was demonstrated most completely on the cross. He bore the full weight of the sin and suffering of the world as he was exiled from his father, just as Israel was supposed to be. But just like Israel was meant to be remade and returned from exile, Jesus returned from his exile by being raised from the dead, triumphing over sin, death, and hell. God saved the world and fulfilled his promises, even though he had every right to destroy it. And he demonstrated that he has a completely different kind of power, which is fundamentally based on his love for us and not on violence. And this tells us that God cares about the world that we're living in right now, which is great. He didn't stay in heaven and wait for us, but he invaded the fleshly world that we see in front of us us right now. God began his reign on earth about 2,000 years ago because he sent Jesus as his king. And King Jesus has liberated a people from bondage to sin and allowed them to reign over the world with him. But here's the catch. That reign is happening right now. And the people that God liberated was the church. We cried out to God and asked, how long, God, until you open the heavens and come down and rule over us? And God did exactly what we asked. He came down and ruled over us, and he set up his church as his representatives for his rule. At that point, we don't get to say, cool, thanks for saving us, God, but we don't actually need your rule on earth anymore, and being your representative sounds hard, so we're just going to do things our way, and you know, see you in heaven. No. All that evil and injustice and sickness and death is, is our problem now, because Jesus invaded the world and set the church in charge until he returns. We don't get to say the earth doesn't matter, so if we destroy it, there's no big deal. No, Jesus invaded the earth by opening the heavens. It's his territory, and he put us in charge of it. We don't get to say the way our society treats people isn't our our concern as long as they go to heaven. No, Jesus invaded our society by dying on the cross. It's his territory. He didn't stay in heaven, so why should we pretend that we get to? We don't get to say, it's too bad that person's sick, but all that is is their physical body, and God doesn't really care about that. No, Jesus invaded the same world and took on his own physical body. It's his territory. If Jesus healed the sick, then we do too. We're his representatives. This seems like a really hard job, and it is. How do we manage to represent God's reign on earth? More to the point, wasn't Israel supposed to do that, and they failed miserably? The answer comes a few days after Jesus was raised. You find out that, in a sense, John was right. There would be a baptism by fire, but it didn't come through a violent overthrow of the Roman regime. It came at Pentecost. On that day, the church was baptized by the tons of fire from the Holy Spirit and was equipped to conquer the whole world using the same kind of love that Jesus showed them. We can do the hard work of representing God's reign on earth Because God has equipped us with his Holy Spirit. He already fulfilled our role by doing everything that God's people were supposed to do. He passed the test in the wilderness and he bore the suffering of the world, but he did it without sin. Now with God's help we have the privilege of doing the mopping up work. Lord Jesus, we thank you for fulfilling your promises even when we do not. We pray that we would be filled with your Holy Spirit with your power to show your rule on earth. In your name, amen.